Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have A Fourth Must Die by Benton Braden. Braden was a prolific writer of crime and detective stories in the pulps. He got his start in the early 1930s writing for the Street and Smith Detective Pulps, including Clues and a Detective Story magazine. Braden's most popular character was Willie Brand, who appeared in more than 20 stories in Thrilling Detective in the 1930s and 40s. Braden also wrote for many of the other thrilling pulps, including Popular Detective, Detective Novel Magazine, and The Phantom Detective. This story, which first appeared in the November 1942 Thrilling Detective, features an escalating series of murders and an increasingly desperate killer. This story is included in our recent release from Brick Prickle Media, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales Volume 3, now available in print and ebook format. It collects six vintage pulp novels from the tattered pages of Thrilling Detective. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. And you can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website. And that link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. A Fourth Must Die by Benton Braden Sterling Danforth's amazing chain of perfect murders finally proves to be only as strong as its weakest link. Chapter 1. Death Pays a Dividend Sterling Danforth smiled in smug satisfaction as he regarded his own handsome features in the mirror's reflection. Those features have paid dividends in spendable cash. Years ago, he's on his uppers. Now he had a wife. A wife who was ten years older than he, a wife who could hardly be rated as a comely, a wife who had more money than she could ever hope to spend. What a stroke of luck it had been. A few simple words in a quiet wedding ceremony had meant the difference between poverty and opulence. From that moment on, money had flowed through Danforth's hands like water. Nothing had been denied him. Life had become just one grand party after another. He had, of course, to pay a certain price. On certain evenings, he had to go out with his wife. And since Harriet was rather stout, almost ugly, in many ways stupid, such evenings were dull affairs. But there were other evenings. Evenings when he was footloose, when he could make the rounds of night spots and private parties with his pockets bulging with money. He made up for it then. Danforth was thankful his wife never complained of his extravagance. It was true that she was inclined to be jealous. She occasionally berated him when rumors of wild parties reached her ears. But Danforth could handle her. After all, she was wildly in love with him, and all he had to do was put his arms around her and flatter her until she forgot her grievances. That had always worked. It never occurred to Danforth that a time might come when it would not work. Now, as he was preparing to dress for another gay evening out, the door of his bedroom opened. Danforth looked up. It was Harriet. He smiled and said, Hello, darling. There was no answering smile on Harriet's face. Her eyes were cold, her lips set in grim lines. Danforth knew the signs. Harriet had heard something again, probably about the party he had thrown at the Grove last week. Well, he knew how to handle her. In ten minutes, he'd have her crying on his shoulder. Now, now, he waved his forefinger at her. What's been annoying, my little sweet? Has someone been telling lies about me again? No, Sterling. No one has been telling lies about you. I didn't come here to quarrel with you tonight. I came in to ask one thing of you. 
That puzzled Danforth for an instant. Harriet had everything. There wasn't much that she could ask of him. But he threw up both arms in a gesture of generosity and said, Anything, Harriet, anything your heart desires that is within my power to give. What is it? A divorce, she replied. A false smile dropped from Danforth's face as if it had been slapped off. Consternation replaced it. He couldn't believe what he had heard. Did you say? I said that I want a divorce. His eyes narrowed and grew cold. Nonsense, Harriet. You know very well that our relationship is a pleasant one. You have no reason whatsoever to even mention such a thing. I am really serious, Sterling. I want a divorce. She seemed to be determined, but he decided to apply the old tried and true remedy. He advanced toward her, tried to pat his arms around her. You know I'm wild about you, Harriet, he cried. She pushed him away, pushed him away rather roughly. Don't remind me of it. Perhaps I did love you. More likely it was just an infatuation. You were young, handsome. I was older and not handsome. Yes, it must have been infatuation because surprisingly it has left me as suddenly as it came. In the past two days, Sterling, my feelings towards you have undergone a complete change. She really means it, he thought. Well, she won't get away with it. Aloud, he said. So, you've been listening to those lies again. You know they're utter nonsense. The shadow of a smile crossed her lips. It was a cold, almost malicious smile. I no longer have the slightest interest in your past escapades, Sterling. If you've had a good time while it lasted, that's fair enough. Whatever it costs, I'll charge off to experience. The point is that it's all over now, and I want a divorce. A cold wrath was rising in Danforth. His life of ease was about to be snatched away. He was not fool enough to let it go without a struggle. You're a fool, Harriet. You are my wife, and I refuse to divorce you. Fortunately, you won't have a great deal to say about that, Sterling. If you won't agree to a divorce, I can find ample grounds. You've left a broad trail. You've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of my money. And you can't show where you spent it much more than a thousand dollars directly on me. I have your canceled checks, and they are a story in themselves. No judge would look at those checks and refuse me a divorce. We'll see about that. You can't throw me out and get away with it. No, I can't put you out bodily, she admitted. Although I really should, since I'm now well aware that you married me solely for my money. But I'm going to make you a settlement. A settlement? It might be worth his while. And they wouldn't have to face her across the breakfast table again. Well, let's have it. How much? Five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars? Well, that's chicken feed. It's quite enough to allow you to live for a long time in the manner which you were accustomed to before you married me. Danforth was blind with anger. He could barely keep the smoldering flames in check. So you'll just kick me out with a measly five grand when you smother yourself in millions? Well, my dear wife, let me see you try. It's up to you, Sterling. You can take 5000 or you can take nothing. From my point of view, I owe you exactly nothing. I shall divorce you at once. I shall expect you to leave this house in the morning. If you want the 5000 you can let me know before you leave. Danforth's face was purpling. He slowly clenched his fists. Inwardly, he was raging, but he was thinking, too. Thinking of the kind of life he would leave if he were forced to walk out of this great house in the morning with a mere $5,000. His mind was racing with purpose, with a plan. There was no time to think things out deliberately. 
He had to act and act now while he was still Harriet's husband and would be entitled to share in her millions. Her expression showed contempt as he took two steps toward her. She didn't see until it was too late that his purpose was not just to try the same old tricks, to cajole her into forgiveness. She didn't realize that her handsome mate could suddenly become a man and ruthless killer until his outstretched fingers were closing about her neck. Then her jaws opened wide and she tried desperately to scream. So you'd kick me out five grand, would you? He taunted her as her eyes went glassy in horror. I'm just a little smarter than you thought I was. Squawk if you can, it won't do you any good. We're all alone in this wing of the house, and the servants couldn't hear you if you did scream. It was always your idea we should have such privacy in our rooms. That's going to work out very nicely now. It was minutes later when Danforth carried Harriet into her own bedroom. He was working coolly, confidently. He laid her on the floor. He rose, swung back a picture on the wall, and opened the safe behind it. He pulled out three jewel cases and some papers, scattered the papers over the floor, then emptied the cases and threw them down. Then he dropped some rings and brooches in his pocket. He knelt by Harriet's side and put a necklace in her hand. He closed her finger about it, held them with one hand, then pulled with the other. The necklace broke and he dropped the long end of it into his pocket. He pressed Harriet's hand tightly about the strand of two diamonds that remained in her hand. Then he rose and looked down at her. He assured himself he must not overdo the act. He had to look as Harriet had surprised the burglar at her safe. No more. No overturned chairs, no dramatic setup that would make the police suspicious when they surveyed the scene. Even the police were suspicious. What could they prove? Harriet had made her decision alone. She didn't have any close friends she would have confided in. He was sure of that. They wouldn't even be able to pin a motive on him. The chances were a hundred to one that Harriet hadn't told a soul that she was considering divorce, and she just told him that her infatuation for him had disappeared so suddenly as it had begun. At last he had the scene arranged to his satisfaction. He had wiped his finger marks from the wall safe, raised Harriet, and put the prints of her right hand on the safe. The police might reason the burglar had forced her to open the safe before he killed her. Everything looked all right to Danforth now. Then he saw the letter on a dressing table. It was sealed, addressed to a Mrs. Henry Cauldron in Pittsburgh. That was Harriet's sister. He hastily tore the letter open and read it, his lips moving. Dear Claire, it's all over now. I've come to see Sterling as you do. Almost overnight, I've come to despise him. I realize that he's never cared for anything but my money. He's thrown away hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now all I want to do is get rid of him as quietly and quickly as possible. I shall divorce him at once. I'm not telling anyone but you of this decision at the present time. Danforth gasped in relief as he read those words. His guess that Harriet would not have confided in anyone was correct. There would be only this letter to her sister, and this letter would never be mailed. Danforth read on, but after a few words, his eyes widened in alarm. I want to get my divorce as quietly as possible, with a minimum of publicity, so I've consulted James Haston, my attorney. I've had him si- draw up a paper for me, which I will ask Sterling to sign in the morning. Sterling will get $5,000 if he signs, nothing if he refuses. I'm quite sure he'll accept the 5000 when he realizes that I can divorce him without paying him a penny, if I choose to do so. I will write you again as soon as the matter is fully settled. Harriet. His expression was bitter as he slowly crushed that sheet of paper in his fist. Harriet had consulted her attorney, James Haston, who would furnish the police with the motive, and it was the best kind of motive. There was only one answer to that. Haston must be silenced. Danforth couldn't take any chances now. He had taken the irretraceable step. His wife was dead on the floor there, and he'd go to the chair for a murder if he didn't play the game on through, no matter what risks he had to take. Danforth looked the room over very carefully before he left. He returned to his own room, burned the letter in his fireplace, and dressed quickly. He would leave the house by a door on the east, and no one would be able to swear at what time he had gone. 
His story, of course, would be that he had left early, an hour earlier than the time at which a medical examiner would estimate the time of Harriet's death. Danforth had some acquaintance with James Haston. As Harriet's husband, he had signed papers with her several times. He knew that Haston was a bachelor and lived alone in an apartment. Danforth looked at the phone directory and found Haston's residence listed at 738 Cowper Place. Chapter 2. Double in Death It was 9 o'clock when Danforth sneaked from the house. Once he was outside, there was no chance of anyone in the house seeing him in the darkness. He walked several blocks and dropped in a drugstore and called the number listed at 738 Cowper Place. The operator informed him that Haston lived in apartment C on the fifth floor. Danforth left the drugstore and took a taxi to the Hotel Stentham, went into the bar and had one quick drink. Then he walked out and climbed into another taxi. He kept the broom of his hat pulled down so the hacker couldn't see his face. He stopped ten blocks from Cowper Place and covered the remaining distance on foot. Using the service entrance and stairs, he reached the fifth floor without being observed. Without hesitation, he rang at the door of apartment C. When the door opened, he recognized the slender figure and narrow face of the lawyer. He pushed right on in, closing the door behind him. Good evening, Haston, he said briskly. You remember me. I'm Sterling Danforth. My wife informed me this evening she wanted a divorce. A complete shock to me, but when I saw that she was in earnest about it and that I would not be able to change her mind, I agreed to the divorce. I would not for a moment stand in her way, and to make things easier for her, I decided to leave the house at once. She told me she had consulted you, that she would like to have me get in touch with you. I'm not one to put things off. It's an unpleasant business, and the sooner we get it over with, the best for all concerned. You're taking the sensible view of it, Danforth. The attorney agreed. Yes, your wife consulted me this afternoon. Frankly, she wasn't just sure how you would make her decision. If you'll just come to my study, I'll explain further. Danforth followed him through the living room and into the study that led off the rear of hall. Haston settled himself at a desk. Danforth dropped into a chair at the side of the desk. Uh, you agreed, well, to the to the settlement your wife offered you? Of course. $5,000. I want to take cent from money, of her money if I didn't need it. That 5000 will enable me to make a fresh start somewhere. The attorney reached into the briefcase that lay on the desk and removed a sheet of fool's cap. This is the agreement that I drew up for you to sign, Danforth. By it, in consideration of the sum of $5,000, you agree to surrender any claim you might have against your wife, Harriet. The divorce, of course, is not mentioned. But it is understood that you are not to contest the action that I will bring for your wife. On the other hand, we will make the grounds for divorce as reasonable as possible. If that is satisfactory to you, you can sign this paper and the $5,000 will be paid you as soon as the bank opens in the morning. I'll sign it, Danforth said quickly, but would you mind reading it to me first? I don't have my glasses with me. The lawyer nodded and lifted the paper. Danforth stood up, moved around with the apparent purpose of looking over Haston's shoulder. But Danforth didn't even hear the words as the legal phraseology rolled off the attorney's tongue. Danforth's hand was coming out of the right pocket of his coat and there was a bronze paperweight in his hand. Again, his eyes flamed with rage as he lifted the weight. He brought it down on Haston's head. He struck again and again. Danforth was breathing heavily when he stepped back a minute later and surveyed the result of the attack. Haston's body had slipped from the chair and fallen to the floor. Danforth wasted no time. He picked up the paper that Haston had dropped. He searched the briefcase to make sure there was not a copy of the agreement in it. He glanced through the drawers of the desk. There was nothing else here, but in Haston's office there would be at least one copy of the agreement in the files. Danforth knew in that instant that he had one more murder to commit. Haston had no partner. His practice was confined to a handful of wealthy clients. But he hadn't typed an agreement himself. He dictated it to his secretary. 
The secretary would remember what she had written. As long as she lived, she could point an accusing finger at Danforth, supplying the police with the motive for the murder of not only Harriet, but for the lawyer as well. There was no alternative, no choice. That secretary must die, and die quickly. Danforth's brain was racing again, planning each step that had to be taken. This, he was quite sure, must be the last step, the last murder, and he dare not overlook the smallest detail in his commission. He searched haste and took his keys. The brim of his hat was down over his face again when he left the apartment. With hunched shoulders, he edged swiftly along the corridor. He was breathing hard when he went down the service stairs. Not until he had reached the street and walked half a block did he relax, and a grim smile twisted his lips. Suspect what they might, they'd never be able to prove that it was his hand that struck down Harriet and Haston. These were two perfect jobs. He'd be even more careful the last one because he couldn't have more time to plan. Twenty minutes later, he climbed the stairs to the seventh floor of the Marquand building. There was no sound in the corridor as he stepped before the door of Haston's offices. Using his keys, he was inside in less than a minute. He didn't turn on a light. Considerable light came through from the corridor and he had a box of matches in his pocket. First, he stopped at the secretary's desk. He grunted as he found a letter that the secretary had left in her desk. It was addressed to Miss Edna Wales at 2229 Pine Street. He glanced through it. It was from an aunt of the secretary, and its contents left no doubt that Edna Wales was Haston's secretary. Next, Danforth went to the files. Quickly, he found the Harriet Danforth file. He found three copies of that agreement and some notes in longhand that Haston had jotted down. He thrust them in his pocket. That, he was quite convinced, disposed of all the documentary evidence that Harriet Danforth had ever considered divorcing her husband. There only remained Miss Edna Wales, secretary. But Danforth wasn't quite through in the office yet. He glanced through file for file, examining correspondence. At last, he discovered a letter that brought a triumphant smile to his lips. Some client of Haston had written him a pretty hot letter. He had practically charged Haston with cheating him. Danforth tucked that file under his coat. Since that file listed under the name of Vanton was going to be missing, he didn't bother to pick up burnt matches. He left the office with caution, but the building was practically deserted this hour, and he didn't meet a soul. Danforth was very sure that up to the present moment he hadn't made a miscue in this night of murder. But that very fact made his heart begin to thump a little as he approached the modest apartment at 2229 Pine Street. Would his luck hold out? Would he even be able to enter and leave another building without even being glanced at by some nosy person who might remember his face? Or even his figure and the way he was dressed? He set his teeth together in determination. He had to take the risks no matter what they were. Edna Wales had typed that agreement. She was the only living person who could testify that Harriet Danforth was not still blindly in love with her husband. He walked slowly past the building, made sure no one was loitering in the small foyer. He glanced at the mailboxes to get the apartment number. Then he went on in and swiftly mounted the rather narrow stairs to the third floor. He moved down the hall, stopped before a door, and punched the button at the right. He waited nervously for more than a minute, but he managed an easy smile as the door opened. He had that Vanton file under his arm and eased forward a little as he bowed. You are Miss Edna Wales, are you not? She nodded and said, Yes. You are the secretary of my friend, Attorney James Haston? I am. There is no sign of recognition in her eyes. I am urgently in need of a secretary, Miss Wales, he told her as he managed to take another step forward and close the door. I must have a secretary at once, tonight. Mr. Haston told me about you. Told me that you might know of an expert legal stenographer who is not employed at the moment. It is of such importance that I decided to drop by and see you personally. Edna Wales' eyes brightened a little. I think I can recommend a secretary. It just happens that a girl I know quite well is looking for a position. Her name is Gladys Hillman. If you wish, I'll call her. Just give me your address and I'll see her in person, Danforth said. Here's a pencil right on the back of this file. She took the pencil in her hand, then the file. She bent her head. It was a knife that flashed this time. Danforth had his arm over her mouth before she could move 
and he sank the knife into her back with the other hand. The scream that she might have uttered dwindled to a gurgle, then a great sigh. Finally, he lowered her to the floor and she lay still. He dropped the file by her side. He sniffed, seeming to smell a pungent odor. Finally, he located it. It came from a cloth that she had had about her neck. She must have had a sore throat and been using turpentine on it. Danforth turned back to the door. There was only danger in lingering here and he wasn't interested in looking over the small apartment. He opened the door and listened for a moment. Then he went back through the hall and down the stairs. He was elated when he walked away from the building. Brains and luck were an unbeatable combination. He congratulated himself. It wasn't every man who was smart enough to commit three murders without making a slip. Ten minutes later, he stood in the doorway and made a final mental check. He was absolutely sure he hadn't left a clue anywhere. Not so much as a single fingerprint. The murder weapons were safely disposed of. He destroyed every trace of evidence that might point to a murder for the murder of his wife. And that vanton file that he left with the Wales girl was a red herring that would give the cops a headache. All he had to do now was firmly deny there had ever been any rift between himself and Harriet. Since Harriet had always given him all the money he wanted, there would seem to be no reason why he wanted to kill her. Danforth considered his next move. The answer was easy. He'd go right on and spend the evening as he had planned in the first place. He had worked very fast. There was hardly more than an hour they wouldn't be able to account for if he lied about the time a little. They couldn't possibly check him on that. He had drinks at two bars in rapid succession, then went to the Tower Club. He was a regular there and immediately found a seat with a couple of friends. Two more drinks and he was thoroughly relaxed, ready for whatever might come. But he reasoned that none of the bodies would be found until morning. Even then, he might finally have to go in and discover the body of his wife on the floor of her bedroom. After all, he reflected, murder was a simple thing for a man with iron nerves, a man who could coolly consider each step that he had to make. He laughed and joked with his friends, and another hour the club was crowded. He began to wonder what hour it would be best for him to leave and go home. About three, he decided, would be right. Not too early, not too late. But the decision was taken away from him. It was only a little past midnight when a heavy-shouldered man with the firm, clean-shaven chin appeared at his table. He took a chair without invitation. You're Sterling Danforth. That's right, Danforth said with a broad smile. I have some pleasant news for you, Mr. Danforth. I'm Lieutenant Detectives Reagan. Danforth's face sobered. What's the trouble, Lieutenant? There appears to have been a burglary at your house tonight, Mr. Danforth. Your wife must have surprised the burglar. At any rate... You don't mean that she was hurt? Danforth broke in. Yes, she was hurt. I think you'd better come with me, Mr. Danforth. Your wife is dead. She was murdered. Murdered? No! Danforth came to his feet, shuddered, then walked unsteadily away beside the detective. But Danforth was very careful not to overplay his role as a stricken husband. When they reached the bedroom where his wife lay, he clenched his fist as he looked down at her. His face twitched with just the right degree of smothered grief as he knelt beside her and gently touched her hair. Lieutenant Reagan watched closely and got none of the answers for his pains. When did it happen? Danforth asked thickly after a moment. Around nine o'clock, the medical examiner said. You saw her tonight before you left the house? Uh, yes, I, I told her I thought I'd go out for the evening and asked her if she wanted to go along. She said she had a slight headache and would stay at home. That was here uh, in, in her bedroom. Between 7.30 and 8, I'd guess. I went back to my room and dressed. I must have left the house around 8.30 or a quarter to 9. I dropped in the Hotel Stentham Bar and had a couple of drinks. I, I didn't see anyone there, I knew, so I went out to Stubby's place. Later, I was in Tony Blaine's place for oh, 15 minutes or so. Then I walked on up to the Tower Club where I ran into Mitten and Alcorn. 
I was with them when you came into the club. Naturally, I hadn't called back home in the meantime. Who found her? A maid. There was a phone call for your wife. The maid came up to the room to find out why your wife didn't answer. She found her here on the floor. Do you know what was in the wall safe, Mr. Danforth? Well, I know it was generally in it. Two necklaces, some brooches, some rings. I used it occasionally myself when I had more cash than I wanted to carry around. But mainly my wife used it for the jewelry she wore regularly. She kept her more valuable pieces in a box at the vaults downtown and got them out when she wanted to wear them. Just how, Lieutenant, was she... Danforth stammered as he looked at his wife. There's little doubt she was strangled, Mr. Danforth. We'll want to make a more thorough examination later. We didn't want to move her until we talked to you. Didn't want to overlook a possible clue that you might furnish. Danforth shook his head miserably. We're careless about locking doors. Someone may have been watching when I left the house and may have entered after I left. I don't remember whether I locked that east door or not. It was unlocked when we examined it, Reagan told him. When, an hour later, Sterling Danforth retired to his own bedroom, he was well satisfied. Lieutenant Reagan hadn't hinted he was suspicious in any way. He hadn't asked a single sharp question. But Danforth knew that Reagan would ask some sharp questions later, after the bodies of the lawyer and the secretary had been found. Yes, Reagan would be very suspicious. But what could he do about it? And that is it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening today. And just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.